0: Hey there. Welcome to ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we will be discussing glomus tympanicum, and we are joined by Dr. Matt Carlson. Dr. Carlson, thanks again for being here. Thanks so much for having me. We do have another episode on glomus jugulare, and while these uh, two types of tumors do share some similarities, we felt it would be worthwhile to have a different episode to specifically discuss glomus tympanicum. So Dr. Carlson, why don't you tell us how a patient presents to your clinic when they do have a glomus tympanicum?
1: Yeah, so the great majority of patients who present with glomus tympanicum tumors present with pulsatile tinnitus, and that occurs in over 80% of patients. Um, Also coinciding with that is conductive hearing loss, and by far and away, these are the two most common symptoms. Less commonly, patients may have with a larger glomus tumor. Uh, sorry, a larger glomus tympanicum tumor. The tumor can erupt through the eardrum and can cause bloody otorrhea.
0: And do these patients have cranial nerve deficits?
1: So that's an important characteristic uh, that defines glomus tympanicum versus glomus jugulare. So glomus tympanicum tumors typically do not result in any sort of cranial neuropathy. Even with more advanced disease, it's uncommon for them to cause facial nerve paralysis and lower cranial nerve paralysis. And essentially, by definition, if at, if at diagnosis you identify a patient with invasion of the jugular frame and lower cranial nerve uh, uh, paralysis, they would be defined. Uh, that condition would be defined as a jugular paraganglioma rather than a tympanicum.
0: And when you evaluate these patients in clinic, what will you see on the physical exam?
1: So on physical examination, uh, on otoscopy, you'll see a retrotympanic mass, and it will have a characteristic red, deep red hue. That will be in contrast to other tumors or other diseases that can present in the middle ear space. So, for example, a facial nerve schwannoma will typically have a more um, pink or light, uh, light pink or white appearance, and more commonly it will be in the kind of the posterior quadrant. A large encephalocele from the tympani may also be pulsatile, just like a... uh, glomus tympanicum, but it has a more deep purple hue and it tends to be pedicled superiorly. Aberrant carotid artery would be an anterior inferior if it did have a more lateral course. A high jugular bulb would be more posterior, uh, posterior inferior compared to uh, glomus uh, tympanicum. And then you can have uh, chronic otitis media with a polyp, for example, might uh, present with bloody odorrhea and rarely can be mistaken for a glomus tympanicum tumor.
0: And when we talk about the type of patient that you see who presents to your clinic, what's the general
1: demographic of folks with this type of tumor? So most commonly, patients with glomus tympanicum will present in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, but certainly outside that age range is possible. Um, paralleling patients with jugular periganglioma, there is a predilection towards women, but it's not uh, strong. Uh, jugular paragangliomas have a association with about six to one female to male involvement and with uh, tympanicum it's not uh, quite so strong. And is there a familial component to this? So that's a good question. Uh, Patients with uh, glomus tympanicum can have isolated disease or they might have a familial component or even sporadic uh, multiple head and neck paragangliomas. tympanicums aren't st- as strongly associated with uh, familial periganglioma syndromes uh, compared to, say, a jugular periganglioma or a vagal or carotid body tumor, but it still can occur. Um, as we discussed in the other podcast on jugular periganglioma, uh, there are some familial uh, conditions that might predispose one to developing tympanicum or jugulary, and those would include MEN 2A, uh, 2B, NF1, or von Hippel-Lindau, or it may asso- be associated with the condition of familial periganglioma syndrome, which is not a normal, dominantly inherited uh, condition that's associated with a succinate dehydrogenase mutation, uh, one of four m- different mutations. And moving on to pathophysiology, what is a glomus tympanicum? So historically, these were uh, all of these uh, tem- uh, temporal bone perigangliomas were given different names, and chemodectoma was uh, orig- originally ascribed simply because they ar- arise from uh, chemoreceptor cells. Um, associated with parasympathetic nerves. Um, the uh, the s- more specifically are uh, cells derived from the paraganglia. They contain non chromophin staining chief cells. And when those, chi- when those cells uh, cluster or uh, li- lie in nests, they have a, uh, a characteristic histo- histopathological appearance called zelbalin or rests of cells. And that's a common board question that's asked.
0: And occasionally, I've seen a mention of specific nerves that are involved in this tumor or from which this tumor emanates. Can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah. So all uh, the paragangliomas of the head and neck can originate from they originate from different stru- original structures. And so, uh, um, just to answer your question more broadly, uh, jugular paragangliomas uh, arise from the adventitia of the jugular bulb. Uh, carotid body tumors arise from the chemoreceptor cells in the carotid body. And then specifically for glomus tympanicum, they're thought to arise from the tympanic plexus, related to um, Jacobson's nerve, which is the auricular, uh, the tympanic branch of the ninth nerve, and also Arnold's nerve, which is uh, a branch of the vagus nerve that involves the tympanic plexus.
0: And when you suspect this type of tumor, what's your
1: initial workup for these patients? So uh, typically, the examination is. very diagnostic. Uh, Again, you see a retrotympanic mass. It's typically pulsatile. Patients will have conductive hearing loss and pulsatile tinnitus and an absence of cranial neuropathy. And that alone should uh, allow you to make a diagnosis uh, with pretty high certainty, at least a a working clinical diagnosis. The general rule of thumb is if you can see a well-circumscribed lesion in in, in the middle ear space and you can see all the way around it on autoscopy, technically that should exclude the possibility of this being actually a jugular periganglioma arising from the jugular bulb and coming up into the middle ear space. I'll say that most of the time uh, these patients will have a temporal bone CT scan and that's just to make sure it doesn't extend uh, into other areas of the temporal bone. So for example again if it went down into the jugular foramen you would say you would call this a jugular periganglioma. If it was involving other structures you might change your differential diagnosis depending on where it's emanating from. You also want to see the extent of the tumor itself. Is it just confined to the middle ear space on the promontory? Is it extending down to the hypotympanum? Does it involve uh, the mastoid part? Is there erosion of the tegmen, uh, et cetera?
0: And do you typically get an MRI on these patients? If you feel like you see the well-circumscribed mass and you feel very confident in what it is, do you still get an MRI?
1: If their presentation is very typical and their otoscopic examination is um, what we'd expect, and um, our suspicion is very high, and the CT findings are, are um, straightforward, then we typically don't get additional imaging. But if you were to get an MRI, what would that show? So if you get an MRI, if it's, if it's a large enough lesion, you can see flow voids. In flow voids, it has a characteristic salt and pepper appearance, more, more commonly seen on, or better seen on T2, but you can see it on T1 post gadolinium uh, contrast administration. Uh, these tumors also avidly enhance with uh, gadolinium, and they're relatively heterogeneous tumors.
0: And for these patients, do you typically get any labs? Uh, the reason I ask is because other paragangliomas, such as a pheochromocytoma or even a jugular paraganglioma, we talk about working up for metanephrines and that kind of thing.
1: So, um, as we discussed in the uh, previous po- podcast related to uh, jugular paraganglioma. Uh, historically, we would only get uh, catecholamine testing if a person was symptomatic with hypertension, flushing, um, headaches, or other symptoms of secretion. And more commonly now, we are routinely getting catecholamine testing for all our patients with jugular uh, um In contrast, a person with an isolated glomus tympanicum, I still think most people are not getting uh, additional testing unless there's evidence of uh, multicentric disease or other symptoms to suggest it. But the the likelihood that a glomus tympanicum itself is a secreting tumor is extremely low and it's case reportable. So um, and most people won't think that it's a high-risk situation.
0: And what about genetic testing? Uh, we talked about that with jugular paragangliomas. Do you routinely seek out genetic testing in these cases?
1: So uh, similar to jugular Historically, we would never get uh, genetic testing on any of these patients. And more and more for jugular paragangliomas, we are getting genetic testing. But uh, still, we really don't commonly do it for isolated glomus tympanicums. And and the reason is um, oftentimes these are isolated tumors that are not associated with a familial paraganglioma syndrome uh, or another condition. If a person wanted to get genetic testing for this Again, you'd probably be looking for the same thing, the succinate dehydrogenase mutation type 1 through 4. If they had multicentric disease, you could also look for uh, other conditions that are associated with it. So
0: we've talked about presentation, pathophysiology, workup. Uh, So once you have an idea of what this tumor is, or you're ready to call this uh, uh, glomus tympanicum, what is the classification system? How do
1: we define these? So this classification system is not widely distributed or uh, known, but it can be tested on boards, and so I think it's worth at least briefly mentioning. And uh, the Glasscock-Jackson staging system, there are two of them. There's one that's specific for glomus tympanicum, and there's a separate one that's specifically, uh, specific for jugular paraganglioma. And so we'll review the glomus tympanicum, uh, glomus tympanicum staging system. So at, uh, stage one uh, is defined by all tumor margins visible on otoscopy. Stage two, the tumor fills the middle ear, and margins are not visible. Stage three, the tumor extends into the mastoid cells. In stage four, the tumor erodes through the tympanic membrane or bone of the external auditory canal. Now that's, um, that's the Glasscock-Jackson uh, staging system for glomus tympanicum. The Ugo Fish classification for um, jugular periganglioma and glomus tympanicum blend into one single classification system under jugulotympanicum, tympanicum and so if you'll recall from the uh, prior podcast uh, a fish a involves just the middle ear space which would be a small tympanicum a b involves uh, the middle ear and mastoid which would be a you know medium-sized tympanicum and then after that in their staging system you get into what we would commonly call a glomus jugulari gotcha so what's the treatment for these so the treatment for glomus tympanicum uh, diverge from what we typically talk about for glomus jugulari and the reason is this glomus jugulari tumors are much larger and there's more morbidity with resection uh, specifically risk of lower cranial neuropathy uh, with resection of glomus jugulari so for a glomus tympanicum the treatment is generally uh, surgery we don't radiate we don't typically recommend radiosurgery for these lesions simply because in general removal is uh, has low morbidity a very high cure rate uh, and um low recurrence. And so uh, the typical uh, treatment is surgical resection with the, the goal of gross total resection. It would be very uncommon that you'd have to leave a little adherent disease behind, uh, perhaps to the facial nerve or the dura or something like that. Uh, the approaches uh, that you use for surgery for resection would be based on the extent of the tumor. So a small tumor isolated to the middle ear space could be performed through a trans canal flap, much like a stapedotomy. If it's a little bit bigger, you might do a postericular trans canal approach with a canal plasty and removing some of the uh, medial bony ear canal for better, better visualization. If it's more involved, you might do a formal tympanomastoidectomy approach with an uh, intact canal wall. And you might perform a facial recess or an extended facial recess where the corded t- uh, tympani nerve is divided inferiorly, and that can take you into the hypotympanum. You can also resect um, uh, mastoid involvement at that point for very extensive disease. And particularly if a person has bad hearing, you might perform uh, a subtotal petrosectomy with the ear canal closure. But those would be the uh, basically the uh, surgical approaches you would use for a uh, glomus tympanicum, small, medium, or large. Does radiation play any
0: role in this treatment paradigm?
1: We don't typically recommend radiosurgery for these lesions. And that primarily gets, gets back to the fact that uh, surgical resection is curative and it has a low morbidity. It also provides immediate benefit uh, or alleviates two of the primary symptoms patients have with glomus tympanicums, and that is the pulsatile tinnitus and the conductive hearing loss. Uh, These are both uh, usually resolved immediately following surgery. In contrast, if you perform radiosurgery, it probably would never get rid of the conductive hearing loss. Uh, There is some data that shows that over time, radiosurgery does provide some efficacy for pulsatile tinnitus in about 50 or 60% of patients, but this is over time and not an immediate benefit.
0: And when we talked about glomus jugulare, we talked about preoperative embolization. Is that something that you do in these tumors?
1: We don't typically perform uh, angiography or embolization in these cases. If the tumor was very large um, and it extended into the mastoid and was uh, uh, large, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be crazy to do so. But specifically for a small middle ear isolated tumor, we typically wouldn't perform embolization. And briefly, what are the typical outcomes
0: you see for these procedures?
1: So uh, microsurgical resection will provide a relief of pulsatile tinnitus in the great majority of patients, improvement in the conductive hearing loss, and it does provide uh, durable uh, cure. So the r- uh, rate of recurrence is probably primarily related to the size the original lesion was and whether or not you perform gross total resection, near total resection, or subtotal resection. But with gross total resection, the risk of long-term recurrence is certainly less than 5%. And how do you follow up with these patients after surgery? Uh, particularly for middle ear tumors or tumors that were isolated to the middle ear, I think a clinical examination with otoscopy is sufficient for more, most patients. A recurrence uh, will typically uh, present with the original symptoms. Patients will say, you know what, I've had a recurrence of my pulsatile tinnitus in my ear. They might have a conductive hearing loss. On examination, In most situations, uh, you'll be able to see the tumor once again.
0: Well, I think we've had a pretty comprehensive discussion regarding this topic. But before we summarize what we've talked about, is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: Um, There are a couple uh, last things that are sometimes asked about on board questions. And uh, one of those uh, those is uh, the brown sign. So brown sign is commonly discussed in the context of jugular paraganglioma, but it also can apply to uh, glomus tympanicum. And that's the idea that the tumor will blanch or lose some of its redness. Uh, when you perform pneumatic otoscopy. That's simply uh, compressing the tumor and flushing some of the blood out of, the, out of it on appearance. Um, the second thing that's uh, sometimes asked, uh, in addition to what the uh, paraganglia cells of origin are related to Jacobson's nerve and Arnold's nerve and the tympanic plexus, the sec- another question related to that is what the blood supply of these tumors uh, commonly arise from and uh, glomus uh, tympanicum typically arise from a tympanic twig or ar- artery off of the ascending pharyngeal and this is often encountered during surgery when you're removing these tumors you'll be taking out the tumor and you'll see a larger uh, vessel coming up inferiorly which can be usually uh, easily controlled with bipolar coagulation or um, uh, applying uh, bone wax into the uh, artery opening
0: great so in summary uh, glomus tympanicum, when patients present with this, they often present with pulsatile tinnitus, subjective hearing loss, and possibly oral fullness, but they should not have lower cranial nerve deficits, unlike glomus jugulare. The physical exam will often show a red pulsatile mass in the middle ear. Folks that present are often women, and the mean age of presentation is in the fifth or sixth decades of life. And in terms of pathophysiology, we're talking about a paraganglioma, which is nests of non-chromophin staining cells that are referred to as the Zell pattern. When we work these patients up, we can get a CT, which would show moth-eaten bone. And in the cases that we get an MRI, we'll see a quote-unquote salt and pepper appearance on T2 and somewhat on T1 with contrast. We don't really have to get laboratory and genetic workup in these cases, which is different from uh, glomus jugulare. And when we talk about diagnostic staging, there's a specific Glasscock-Jackson classification for this. In terms of treatment, again, in distinction from glomus jugulare, we almost only operate on these patients and get uh, great surgical outcomes, often with these uh, symptoms being vastly improved. Dr. Carlson, is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: I think that sums everything up very well. That's glomus tympanicum in a nutshell.
0: It's now time to bring this episode to a close, but before we do, I did just want to ask a few closing questions. As we normally do, I will ask a question, wait a few seconds for you to pause or think of an answer, and then give you the answer. So the first question for today is, what are the common presenting symptoms of glomus tympanicum? The most common presenting symptoms of glomus tympanicum are conductive hearing loss, pulsatile tinnitus, and possible bloody otorrhea. The next question is, what is the most common blood supply of glomus tympanicum tumors? The most common blood supply of these tumors is usually a branch off of the ascending pharyngeal artery. For our next question, what are Jacobson's nerve and Arnold's nerve? Jacobson's nerve is the tympanic branch of the glossopharyngeal nerve. And Arnold's nerve is a branch of the vagus nerve, most often the auricular branch. Our next question is, what is the specific classification system that is used for glomus tympanicum? And if you can, try to remember what those stages are. The classification system that's specific for glomus tympanicum is the Glasscock-Jackson classification system. This is four stages where stage one, the whole tumor is visible on otoscopy. Stage two is the tumor is in the middle ear, but the margins are not visible. Stage three is that the tumor extends into the mastoid. And stage four is that the tumor has eroded through the tympanic membrane or the external auditory canal. Finally, for our last question, what is Brown's sign? Brown's sign is a blanching of a tumor with pneumatic otoscopy. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.